Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Halalia Dean. I am a host on the Library Science Channel, which you're listening to right now. And I am here with Maura C. Flannery, who's here to discuss the new book, In the Herbarium, The Hidden World of Collecting and Preserving Plants. Would you like to introduce yourself and the book? Hi. Uh, Yes, thank you very much for inviting me to do this. Um, my name is Maura Flannery. I'm a, a retired biology professor from St. John's University in New York, and uh, where I taught for over 40 years. And then I uh, moved to South Carolina, and now I uh, work as a research affiliate at uh, the Herbarium at uh, the uh, University of South Carolina in Columbia. And... Um, I've spent my life teaching uh, non-science majors. And so um, I learned almost immediately that uh, they're not, uh, many of them are not terribly interested in science. So um, that was my challenge. And I found I had to sort of broaden my interests to try to find ways to uh, draw them in. And... um, I became interested, the textbook didn't work, is what I found. And so I started to read about the lives of biologists. I didn't get into botany till later. And and as much as I could about biology. And I came across the idea that there's two sides to science. There's the public side that comes out in textbooks and publications and research articles. And then there's the private side of science, how it's really done, which is much more, uh, much messier, and it's where all the excitement is, but the excitement doesn't get into the publications, sort of. Uh, and that gives people uh, a very unbalanced view of science. And so, um, I became interested in, uh, well, I was married to a art historian, so I sort of got interested in art. 
and uh, particularly eventually botanical art. And I also um, uh, did my dissertation on aesthetics of biology. So I saw, but I, I wasn't really that interested in botany. Um, and then about a dozen years ago, I went to, I was inching my way there. And I went to a botany meeting in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and they had a tour of uh, the herbarium in the Natural History Museum. And um, I had never really, I mean, I knew what it was, but I never really encountered one. And so um, it was small, but, you know, I had co uh, cabinets full of, uh, of folders with plant specimens each on on a piece of white paper, stiff white paper. And they're put in this way, not, you know, like the folder usually would be so that the pieces of plant on the floor are. And then they also had, because it was Providence and near the ocean or the sound, um, they had a lot of uh, seaweed uh, bathrooms that are, were commonly made in the 19th century. There was a fad for that kind of thing, particularly for women. It was considered a ladylike way of doing science. And they were just gorgeous. And I just had to find out more about her barrier. It's like I fell in love that day. And I became obsessed with my family with that. And so, um, so that's basically how I came to write a book about herbaria. They are fundamentally uh, plant specimens, preserved plant specimens. Most of them are dried plants. People go out in the field, they collect them, they press them between pieces of paper and then boards to flatten them out and dry them. And uh, once they are, um, if they don't uh, flatten them out, then it's just like leaves in the fall. They're all crinkly and you can't really see structure. And if you don't dry them out, um, the fungus and mold is going to get them. So, uh, but when they are dried like that, and if they are kept away from the three worst things for plant specimens are, you know, molds and, and insect damage, um, water and fire. And so you, they, they were, the rigid, the earliest ones are from the mid um, 16th century. And they have been collected since then. And I'm almost finished answering your question. Um, the, uh, the 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 uh, the reason why I I love them so much is because I think they um, their story is in three parts. First, the history of plant collecting, how all these specimens got into these collections, and um, from all over the world over hundreds of years, and then. Um, they're very important scientifically because this is how botanists keep track of species and name them and describe them. It's a, I mean, they're references for, for botanists. And now they have uh, an amazing, and I think that's why they're becoming better known, an amazing future because um, people are realizing that they can tell something, because they've been collected over several centuries, they can tell something about how the environment has changed. And uh, global warming, habitat destruction, uh, invasive species, all kinds of things. And because of that, they're getting digitized. 
and uh, available on the web. And so more researchers have access to them and more people in general. So so it's it's like they're cutting edge. They're, they're very interesting historically, but they're also cutting edge. And that's what I like about it. Yeah, it's an interesting dichotomy. You also did answer a question I realized I had as you were talking, which is whether there's a hard H on herbarium. <laughs> uh, uh, apparently it's, it's yeah, I have... <laughs> I have trouble with H's because I'm Irish and they have a cold. <laughs> and I was warned about that by my mother when I was a child, but um, that's how I say it. And in the book, I use an herbarium. Yeah. Because my editor told me to, my copy editor told me to. I had used a herbarium, but um, she said that uh, in American English, it's better with an herbarium. I would never argue with a copy editor. No, I would not. <laughs> we'll stick with that. Absolutely <laughs> good. So I wouldn't argue with her either. Great. Uh, so we are going to get more in depth into some of the points you raised about the history and the future of Herbaria. Um, but I want to start with this idea you put forward in the book of plants as documents. You also draw from some sociologists, this idea of immutable mobiles or boundary objects. Um, so if we're thinking about plants as documents, what are some shortcomings of herbaria as records of plants and how have botanists attempted to address these gaps? There are there a lot of, I mean, I have to admit it, there are uh, shortcomings. First of all, they're flat and plants aren't. They uh, lose color. It's it's unusual to see a really uh, a flower that retains its color very well. There are a few, but it's it's not common. The leaves are usually turn brown, so you don't you lose a lot of information. And uh, sometimes that information is on the label, but um, in many cases it isn't. It may be in collection notebooks but they sort of get separated from. So so that's one problem with them is, uh, is that they are not like having a living plant. The other uh, big gap is uh, there is not an evenness to collecting. So that uh, there is some, and, and it just, it's human nature. It's easier to collect plants in certain places to places that are near educational institutions where there are barrier. Those places are, are better served than others in terms of the world as a whole. Um, another problem is that in uh, the uh, southern hemisphere, tropical area, and in tropical areas in general, um, th these areas were colonized. And the by and the, most of the collection was done by the colonizers, so the specimens went back to the colonizers' institutions, which early on was all in Europe. The European herbaria, uh, the two biggest herbaria, are uh, Paris and Kew in uh, in London, and um, 
And that's not just happened. You know, they've been at it for a long time. And um, uh, there are also large collections in Belgium and Spain and Portugal. Um, and so um, it's Germany throughout Europe. And then the United States came later, but they, you know, have done a lot of collecting. So the the uh, there was a big study done on this recently, where they looked at where the specimens are relative to where the plants originally came from, and there's a really a big gap there. And they've done that for a long time. This study sort of put a lot of data behind it. But that's why they start. One of the reasons they started to um, digitize uh, plant collections, they started to digitize what they call type specimens, which is the specimen that was used to um, describe the plant. So it's like the key specimen. And uh, most of those are a lot of them are in Europe. And, um, and so and they and in in North America as well, but um, so the um, the Mellon Foundation around 2010 or before that started to uh, get those digitized, and then that sort of started the trend towards um, taking pictures or scans of the specimens and also uploading the data. Right. So we'll we'll get more into that. Um, you're, I just, you're talking about sort of this lack of context when the plants are removed from their ecosystems in terms of uh, having gaps in the records, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, there's also, I don't know if we will discuss this, so I will add this, um, from the book for anyone who's listening, there are also interesting questions about, having represented these type specimens um, and where they are in the plant life cycle. How, you know, there there are multiple ways. Um, you talk about this a little bit in the book about yes, yes, getting the, getting different parts of the life cycle kind of together right. in one record. Because, uh, um, the flowers, for flowering plants, um, the flowers are often the most important in terms of being able to identify them. They use the, because they're the most, you know, leaves can look very similar on different species, but usually the flowers are much more identifiable. So you want a flower, you want a species in, uh, or a specimen in bloom or in fruit, and fruit are also useful. And then that's the thing, you can't necessarily get both of them all in feed. You know, the plant may not make flowers, and some plants do, but a lot of them don't. They have flowers, and then the flower eventually turns into a fruit, but well, by that time, all well, the flowers are gone. So there are, yeah, there are a lot of, I mean, they're not at all perfect, and that's one of the reasons, because um, this is one of my things, too, is um, that's why botanical illustration became so important sort of an adjunct to the specimen. And as a an art with someone somebody with an interest in art history and aesthetics, um, that is something you discuss a lot in the book, um, which is uh an interesting sort of parallel practice historically. Um so you raised 
a lot of interesting questions about gaps. Let's let's talk about plant naming and sort of making these these official plant specimens. How have botanists attempted to get a handle on the challenges of naming new plant species and what what is that official process in the field? Basically, and it's um I mean people have been naming plants probably as long as they in human beings, because that's how talk about them. But um, and what happened in like early modern times in the sixteenth uh, and seventeenth centuries, as they got more and more plants, the the names were used to describe the species. And so, as they got more and more plants, the names got longer and longer. You know, there'd be two words or three words. And then they'd be four or five, and so that they became unwieldy, and people couldn't remember them. And um, that's when Linnaeus came in, and I'm making a very simple story out of it. But he he came in and um, came up with this idea of just you know, of sort of separating the naming process from the describing, and so he would give this the plant. Um, a genus and a species name. And then the description would be a short couple of sentences after. And so that really made naming plants a lot easier. But all the names from before Linnaeus, his big book on plant names came out in uh, 1753. So names before that are not considered valid. And then um, after that, um, botanists, you know, kept finding new plants and naming them. Right. We haven't run out of plants yet. <laughs> um, so, and, and, co- and collecting, uh, you know, he thought uh, you had to have an herbarium. So um, specimens became more and more important, and there were more and more of them. And then, um, but there were a lot of arguments about uh, which, you know, is this plant really this name? And, uh, from the time of Linnaeus on, the person who first described that plant and put it in print was the was considered that was considered the valid name. It had to be published, and that's still the same way today. I mean, if somebody can describe a book of a uh, a plant in a letter or in a talk, uh, but that doesn't count as valid publication. It has to be uh, in a a journal. It can't be uh, published your whole <laughs> out on your blog. And then in the 19th century, um, they started to make rules, and they had um, you know travel got easier, so they started. Of course, it was in Europe. Um, they started, um, I think it was the 1870s, they had these international congress of botanists, and they still do every five or six years. And they, and at those uh, congresses, they, they brought up this idea of we should have a set of rules. They really didn't codify it until the, you know, into the 20th century. But now there's like a handbook that gives all the rules of nomenclature, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. But and then in our to our twenty eleven at that Congress, they decided that um, they would accept um, 
It didn't have to be paper anymore. It could be a um, an online journal. As long as, as, long as the journal, journal yeah. considered reputable. Right. It's all worked out. So that's how the naming process, um, that's how you get an you know, you get, and also it's been the time since Linnaeus that after the name, after the, na the name is the uh, author of the species. So there's a lot of plants that have a nail after them because he was the one that named them. Right. And then if somebody comes along and changes that name for some reason, the L remains in parenthesis and now the person mm -hmm. Interesting. It's it really yeah. <laughs> enough of that. Gets long, still gets long. <laughs> the, the other thing, just quickly, is that um because this this has become a big issue now, is you know, what what the name means. And sometimes the name means uh, some of Linnaeus's ones. He just used the names that had been used in the past. And some of them were like from uh, ancient texts. You know, they were Greek and Latin names of various kinds. And then uh, people said they did still, until the 2011, you still had to write a, a description of the plant in Latin. And the name is still in Latin. There's, uh, there's all kinds of rules about you know, Latin nomenclature. Did so, they teach you Latin in botany school, or you got a well, wing no, out? I, see, I learned Latin. <laughs> I botany. I'm of that era, but um, it uh, and it helped, you know. Um, but um, it's um, now that's no longer you no longer have to write a Latin description. Um, but you still the name still has to be in Latin. But they often name plants after. It's considered, you know, you don't name a plant after yourself, but you name it after somebody else. So people would name plants after other. It was considered like a, an honor to have a plant after you and so on. And that kind of thing still goes on. But now there's a big issue about, and you know, like in the, uh, related to decolonization, that you know, these plants are from all over the world. There were all these people who were involved in the process of finding these plants, and those names are gone. Um, and also the indigenous name of the plant, it's very rare for a plant's official name, you know, official botanical name to be a um, an indigenous name or some derivative of an indigenous name. It's um, And there's also cases where names are somehow offensive to certain groups of people. And what do we do about that? So there's a whole... Um, it's an evolving process. Yeah, about, about that kind of thing. On that note, while we're talking about kind of the official record, a really, I keep saying really interesting, I'll say it again, a really interesting chapter or section in the book um, is about the introduction of DNA sequencing and the way that DNA sequencing upended the way scientists understood a certain plant species to be related. Um, and certain certain elements of the the understood taxonomy had to be sort of rectified. So what what was that process like? You had however many centuries of the botanic record 
um, and things had to be things had to be shifted with the new understanding that came with DNA. It's it's um, and it's not over. You know, I mean, uh, it's um, I mean, really, this was the the issue that um, Linnaeus had, that the botanists have had since they've tried to classify plants is how do you figure out what's related to what? And some plants look very similar, and they may, in fact, be in the same. The whole idea of genus and species took them a long time, took a couple of centuries for them to get that idea that, you know, the species was very specific, and plants you could put together, if they were very similar, you put them in the same genus, and then families, and so on. And there was argument, and... Um, and there still is, because when the DNA started, and when they started sequencing DNA, they would only sequence, you know, all they could do was sequence small pieces. And people would say, well, we can't rely on that. For, you know, you can't start moving. <laughs> this doesn't really... Don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> this little chunk here and blah, blah, blah. But then as they did more and more of it, you could see that, in fact... Plants were tricky, and um, various uh, anomalies that uh, botanists have been dealing with for years all of a sudden look different. You know, uh, oh, that's why that one has got that peculiar thing. And so that's when they started to, um, and it's still going on, because it, it's not like you slide on a whole, you know, the whole slew. You have to go through each um, family, each genus, you know, and test them and see um, whether they jibe or not. And as the DNA has gotten more sophisticated, they can do more and more of the DNA. So that, and it was harder with plants for technical reasons. To um, they, they got into sequencing bacteria and animals a lot faster, but now they've all caught up. And um, so what happens usually, and I'm, you know, I'm not a botanist. I'm just a biologist. But very often what happens, it has to go into a different, um, or a, a different, often a different family. And that's often a big move because um, some families are very large, like um, orc, orchids, but then some are very small. And once you do that, the, the, you can't use the same genus name anymore. So usually what happens is the species name stays the same, but the, um, the genus name will change. And if it's in a different family, a lot of herbaria um, organize themselves around families. So in view of a folder that's full of these plants from this genus, which you have just renamed, you might have just renamed the genus, or you take a genus and you split it in two, so now you get two names and you have to split two folders, that kind of thing. But then in some cases, if it's a different family, you have to move it all the way someplace and a different fire camp. And that's one thing if you're doing it, you know, once, but when you're doing it, uh, some of these big families, it's, um, and so that's why some herbaria, the big ones, um, still use old uh, filing systems because it's just too, New York 
uses a filing system that they've had since the mid 20th century. Wow. Hugh is just, has just moved over in the last few years. And Paris went through a, they redid the whole place. <laughs> they took in a, I shudder to think. The cabinets, put in new cabin. You know, there's like the whole sale. They were closed for years to do this. And at the same time, they were the first to do this. They did a mass digitization. Everybody was shocked. This was back, you know, around 2089. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so it's, um, and it's not finished. Every few years they come out with a new um, system. And um, it's it hasn't changed very much anymore. Uh, but it's still, you know, the barrier my working is small. Uh, it only has like a 140,000 specimens. That's relatively small. But still, when there's this kind of, uh, you know, they're talking about doing this now. And it's uh, it's a big job. And you have to be careful because every time you start moving them around, you can break pieces off. And, yeah. I do. I want to talk about this digitization. Just one clarifying question. When... When a researcher sequences a plant's DNA and says, oh, actually, we had the wrong family, is it the same publication process that makes that yes. an official change? Okay. Yes. yes. All right. So let's let's talk. You have alluded to this a few times. I mean, a major through line of the book is how plant collectors have consistently adopted new technologies to document their collections and to some degree to share their collections. Um, I think one of the interesting shifts that you write about is this idea of plant collecting as a hobby into a scientific discipline, and then also the idea of a scientific discipline going from something very sort of relatively sequestered to being sort of for the public. But what are what are some of the major the major technologies um, that have either impacted the way herbaria are created or even just contributed to their existence, um, or just if you want to talk about plant collecting more generally, it's a big question. <laughs> well, in one sense, the technology is old. I mean, basically. People go out in the field and they collect plants very much like they did uh, 400 years ago. And, um, you know, they they take specimens. They usually put them between pieces of newspaper uh, and, um, and then put stacks of these. They put, like, absorbent cardboard and felts between them to, and, they, and then they make a stack put boards on the end, strap them tight so that they're totally flat, bring them back, and uh, put them in a dryer. Where it, it depends on what species, how long that's going to take. Um, but a few days. And uh, they may change the papers in between. So that technology is just very old. And you put them on white sheets of paper. Now it's acid-free. That's about the biggest innovation. And... Um, they um, what has changed is the labeling. The labels used to might, might just say the name of the plant. It might say the you know like a country or a county where it was found, uh, or very little information. 
and sometimes the name of the collector and not the date. But over time, in the beginning, the botanist just wanted the plants uh, to identify them and to know what they were. And then people began to realize, well, it makes a difference where they're growing. Yeah, they may not. And, and so, and different species grow in different places. So they started to put down locations and, um, and then people wanted credit for their work. So they put their names in the date. The date can tell you, that's often used now to tell when the plant flowered in the past relative to today you have to, and, and that type of thing. So then more and more information got on the labels. And now um, technology has changed that again. First of all, you can even make labels in the field, you know, or at least put in the information in the field that, you know, you, you follow. And, uh, and then uh, also um, you can get really good uh, coordinates, geographic coordinates, so you know exactly where that plant was collected. So that that technology, the uh, GIS and um, mapping, has become very important. And um, photography. Very often they they will take photographs of the plants. Sometimes they put it on the sheet. Often that's like an auxiliary piece of information for you know documenting the color and so on. So, and there's more and more information about the habitat, what are the species who are there. Labels now are much more informative than they were even even 50 years ago. So that's all changed. <laughs> and um, also getting them scanned and the labels digitized has meant that there are these huge databases now uh, the biggest one is called GBIF, um, Global Biodiversity um, Information Facility. And it's worldwide. Again, it's spotty. Some countries could contribute it a lot more than others. But that's the closest thing to a, a global uh, database. And it's becoming bigger and bigger as time goes on. Um, so, uh, and this, the, once you have this information, particularly things like dates and locations in there, you can start using that data to, uh, for example, it's done a lot of studies now on flowering dates, and they found that the dates of flowering for some plants have changed over the last 100 or 150 years. And so they don't have to go in and pull out every specimen and look at it. <laughs> they can just look at the data. On, but that's another place where there's still big gaps because a lot of specimens have not been digitized. So the data, you know, they're pulling data like they've got it all, and they really don't. Um, but it's, it's moving in that direction, and that's why Europe and uh, the United States and Brazil... Um, in South Africa, China, are all putting money into this. And I'm, I'm leaving a lot of countries out that are also. Australia is probably the best example. They have digitized everything. <laughs> Very organized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so that's, yeah, it's becoming more and more, uh, and it's being used more and more as a, 
um, a database for various uh, projects dealing with biodiversity, either finding out where the plants are, where they were, and they're not there anymore, uh, restoration projects. It's just they become vital for a lot of um, what's going on trying to save the environment. Right. So the digitization has really been at the DNA and the digitization in terms of recent yeah. technologies they, have been they really go together. Yeah, you know because uh, it's made identifying plants, uh, I'd say, more robust. Okay, that. Let's move away from science for a second. Um, this is an interesting, a lot of interesting uses for herbaria, kind of beyond the botanical research. Um, can you talk about them more broadly as sort of, you kind of alluded to this, these historical records that you're using to track changes in the environment, um, but just historical and cultural records sort of beyond scientific uses. This is, yeah, this is probably what fascinates me most, and so I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> but um, I... Um, and this is really why I got interested in it, because um, I, um, as I said, I like the sort of the, the stories behind biology. And um, I started to read about, about the collectors and to find out that there are these collections, you know, Lewis and Clark, people whose names you know for other reasons, um, Captain Cook. Oh, yeah. Well, there, there's a huge number of specimens taken in his voyages by various people. And um, uh, and so it, it really, I learned a lot of history. I learned a lot of geography. And, um, and I learned a lot about, um, I think this is what I found most, in, it's interesting but disturbing, is how much of the information was provided by indigenous people and often enslaved people in the areas where the plants were collected because the Europeans went in and um, they knew nothing about plants. They're coming from Europe, which has one type of vegetation, and they're going to someplace like Equatorial Africa or Brazil which has a totally different, or Australia, which has a totally different um, biota. And there's no way that, particularly early on, what they wanted was to find plants that were economically valuable, particularly medicines. And so there was no way they were going to find medicinal plants by just walking into a, a forest. Someone had to tell them, we use this for this, we use that here. If you go this way, you will find this plant. And so they were totally dependent on information from others. And that that link was sort of bleached out. Sometimes the collectors themselves did it um, by just writing down what they wanted to write down. They didn't write down who showed them or where they were told or anything. Uh, or they didn't write down indigenous names for plants. And some, uh, many collectors did. But when they got back to Europe, the indigenous names didn't mean anything to them. And so very often they were removed. 
And they made new labels and didn't have that information. So a lot of information was lost. And when the public science was written, it's like these explorer heroes went in and found, look at what they found. And so the names that are identified with the plants are not the people who actually found them, but the... So I find that, and that's become a very big issue in the last 20 years. And it has opened up the ethnobotany. It's opened up, in terms of culture, it has really changed the botanical landscape in in a, a major way, and in a very interesting way, and a needed way. But there's still an awful lot of work to be done on that. And just the other part of culture is, as you said, um, I'm interested in the art and and there too, uh, there were, uh, and particularly, usually the examples used is India, but uh, there were a lot of Indians that were hired to make, and the same thing happened in South America with the Spanish. Uh, there were Indians hired by the British to paint. They had all these plants. They couldn't keep the color when they were pressed, so they needed art. And um, and so they trained these um, artists. Many of them were uh, in, you know, in art. They were artists, Indian artists, and they sort of retrained them a little to uh, paint plants. But they there's a little bit of the, and the same thing with the some of the South American plants, you can tell they're not done in the official botanical tradition. They're much more, they're brighter, they're more sinuous, they're more alive, sort of. But they're fascinating. And they were true documents because they showed what the plant looked like more dimensionally in terms of color. So they were very important. Now they're works of art and they sell for a lot of money. But you know they were they were which is an interesting thing you know how things go back and forth between art and science, but yeah so there's a lot of culture, uh, a lot of women's history that's been coming up now, uh, women collectors and um, a lot of botanists relied on women in colonial areas to send them plants, that type of thing. We we would be able to get into so much about commerce and the sort of institutionalization of botany and we are just running out of time so listeners you'll have to read the book (laughs) there's quite a bit um one thing i i think given your career sort of engaging non-scientists with the natural world it makes a lot of sense um one of the things that you write about a lot that i was thinking about as you were talking is this idea that humans respond to beauty and on some level need a beauty and these herbaria are you know full of beautiful things and they're kind of a way to begin the process of engaging people who are often totally disengaged from the natural world they've and they've been hidden um in in the sense that you know only botanists can get in uh, I mean, then one of the reasons is just because the plants are so delicate, you just can't have people right. going to them all the time. So most people, if if you were to ask to go to an herbarium, like the herbarium at um, the university where I work, 
um, oh, they're happy to have people because they don't have many people coming to visit them. And then if they can get them to volunteer to uh, to uh, mount specimens or to put data into the computer, well, then that's even better. So they're trying to, uh, a lot of the uh, herbarian are, are very dynamic in the sense that they're trying to really broaden their reach. And, um, and so... Um, so yes, uh, um, and uh, and having all that stuff online, you can you can go in and look at some of these uh, older collections, which are fascinating. They have ribbons on them, yeah, printed vases and stuff like that. I love that stuff. Obviously, <laughs> that actually then brings me to my last question. One final question. For any cataloging librarians who might be listening, I learned in this book about a new metadata standard. It's not Dublin Core, it's Darwin Core for sort of biological materials. So what kind of information is captured in Darwin Core? That's, um, it's, 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 yeah, it's specifically for, for example, species, genus and species names and uh, collector and um, date of collection. So a lot of the a lot of the stuff that has historically been right. captured, right. it's just formalized. Right. Okay, so and, interesting. And this is one of the reasons, and then I'll stop. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're um, good. Reasons, um, my contention is they have to put the historical data and the art together with these specimens, and they are talking about something called the extended specimen, where they'll put the DNA information the specimen, the ecological information together. And I think that should also include the um, field notes and uh, correspondence and the art. And one of the problems with that is that there are all these different standards and they don't necessarily communicate with each other. Yeah. The it's, big it's, problem it's, it's huge. I also it's encounter, huge. yeah. Well, I mean, I'm telling you anything you don't know, but it's a huge issue. Um, and it's, um, but I think if, if we're going to get the, the most out of all of these available resources, we need to find a way to do that. So, knowing very little about botany specifically, I am in complete agreement. <laughs> it's a, it's a major challenge just in. The records world across oh, the God, board. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's another thing I learned. I don't know much, but I learned something about that because it's, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's a huge area. Yeah. Well, that is unfortunately all the time that we have. Thank you so much for coming on um, and talking about your book. And I spent a lot of time looking at digitized plants after I read it. And I hope. Any listeners uh, might be moved to do the same. It's a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. We'll thank sign you. off. Thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. And good luck with all your work. <laughs> thank you.